0: So if you have your Bibles there, why don't you open them up to Luke chapter 9 verse 51 before um, I pray and ask God to meet with us this morning. This is a a confronting passage, Church. This is a challenging passage. And so we're really going to need God's help for us this morning. Luke chapter 9 verse 51. Would you read with me? This is the word of God. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me? Lord God, this morning we want to thank you once more for the privilege of being able to hear from you, Lord God. We thank you for this word. And Lord God, as we now submit ourselves to the preaching of the word, Lord, we pray, Lord God, help us. Lord, this is a difficult time passage, a timely passage that we believe is from you for us for this moment, Lord God, as we begin to consider gathering once more as a church, Lord God, next week. And so we ask, Lord, would it not fall on harsh, rocky soil, but on tender, rich soil and produce its desired effect? Lord God, help us to benefit from listening to you this morning. We pray in the precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, friends, it was the year 2000 and I had just got my very first job working at Bunnings Warehouse. Hard to believe that was 21 years ago. And having my new job, I was on a very large salary or or pay packet per hour that was huge in my eyes at the time. I was earning $7.75 per hour, which you might laugh, you know, if you're a teen uh, listening in and think that's not a lot. But um, at the time, my friends at Macca's were only earning five bucks an hour and I was on seven seventy-five. So I couldn't believe how much money I was earning. And the truth is, as a kid, you know, growing up at school, I really wanted to be like my school friends uh, down in Wollongong and uh, to wear surf brand name clothing. But the problem was that my parents had given me a very slim clothing budget. At least it was in my uh, opinion. It was enough to buy a full wardrobe every year uh, of clothes from Kmart. But from my dream shop, Surf, Dive and Ski, it was enough to buy roughly one item of clothing. And so that's what I would do. Buy one item of clothing every uh, season and wear that same item of clothing over and over again. Now I was making the money... Big dollars. I could pour my savings in now, not into one item of clothing, but into a handful of items of clothing, one hoodie and maybe a couple of T-shirts as well. You know, looking back on it, I kind of feel sad uh, for my old self. I was so captivated by appearances and the approval of my friends. I, I kind of look back at that as a shame and a bit of a waste of money. But the reason why I wanted to share that with you guys this morning is for this reason. It's that when something really captures your heart, you'll be prepared to count significant cost in order to have it. You know, every person intuitively understands this. You know, when the career person, uh, when a person is career focused, you know, they devote all their time and energy into not just meeting their KPIs, but into surpassing them in order they might get that next promotion. You know, watch the home owner who spends every spare dollar and every spare minute on devoting themselves to renovations to have the nicest possible home. You know, you watch the guy who just spends vast amounts of money on dates and on flowers and on gifts to win the heart of that girl. And uh, a big well done to uh, Paul Rees and uh, Freud as well. Uh, in our congregation listening in. Obviously, you guys have done well on that front. You know, it's fair to say that when you love something or someone, the more that it's captivated your heart, the more you'll be willing to count the cost in order to have that thing or to have more of that person or please that person in your life. The more you deeply love something or someone, the more you'll joyfully sacrifice for their sake, I was even just thinking about that this week. My my eldest son Elijah, he's uh, just over two years of old, old, and he's built like a, a little brick. And he's a bit of a tornado. And uh, he's been practicing his newest skill this week, which is jumping. And uh, he was in this very room, and there was a large sort of crate or a hard box, and he was jumping, and he tripped and fell face forward straight into this uh, crate. And even before the tears started coming, I just dropped the work I was doing and picked him up. I didn't even have to think about it. It's the intuitive response of every parent towards a child in need. I'm thinking this week about those that have suffered in our midst going through really difficult times like uh, Julie Pasolidge or like uh, what Patricia was sharing last week or the the Packhams. Uh, a while ago and just our community has rushed to their aid and done it full of joy with no consideration of the cost. And the reason is we love these guys all so much. And the thing I've been thinking about this week is this, it's that how much more ought that be the case when it comes to following the Lord Jesus? That same instinct of joyful service, of counting the great cost without any consideration, it really should be our heart towards Christ. And yet the effect of COVID on us as a community, the way in which it's, it's isolated us from one another, the way in which it's, it's locked us at home and and has allowed our focus so often to become inward so that we begin to be entertaining the time away and not embracing that sacrifice for Christ. It's so easy in our Christian celebrity culture to look on at Christian celebrities like Justin Bieber and Carrie Underwood, or if you follow NFL, Tim Tebow, and, and to look at them and think, you should be able to have it all. You should be able to have Jesus and success, celebrity, fame, and a great career. More still, we live in a free society where we can usually gather and, and where we're, we're wealthy and we're able to meet without any persecution. And it's so easy in the midst of our culture to forget that Jesus clearly teaches us that there is a great cost to following him. we are taken notes this morning, the title of this message I've entitled, The Cost of Following Jesus. And I have two simple points for us this morning that come from the two halves of our passage, The first point is the misunderstood path. And the second point is the costly path. And really one hope for us this morning that I believe is the great burden of our passage. And that is that we would freshly embrace the cost of following Jesus as a church. That's what I believe the Lord is wanting to encourage us in to embrace the cost of following him, particularly now as we move towards as a church gathering together once more, well, let's dive into our first of two points. Point number one this morning, the misunderstood path. You know, if you're new to uh, Luke's gospel, you're new to joining our online uh, meetings, uh, we've been reading an account of Jesus' life written by the famous physician Luke, who gathered eyewitness accounts about the, the life of Jesus and testimonies and put them together in an orderly way uh, to form this biography of Jesus's life. Now, Jesus had spent the initial part of his ministry traveling around his home region of Galilee, performing many great miracles. And Jesus had been revealing himself to his disciples, that he was the promised Messiah, that he was God's chosen king. But he'd been repeatedly telling his disciples that he would be betrayed, that he would suffer and he would die by crucifixion at the hands of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. He told them that twice in our chapter in verses 21 and 44. And he told them that not only would he die, but he'd be raised back to life again. Uh, We read that in verse 22 of this chapter. He didn't even explained that his example of self denial to the point of crucifixion was to be the model for anyone who wished to be his example. And he explained that in verses 23 and 24 of our chapter. But Luke also makes it perfectly clear that the disciples, Jesus' disciples, still did not understand what Jesus was talking about. And we read this in verse 44. It says the following, if you turn to verse 44 and you'll see it on your screen, it says, Let these words sink into your ears, says Jesus. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. You know, God was keeping the disciples from from understanding what Jesus was plainly telling him about his mission, that he'd come to suffer and die for them. And having then revealed his glory as the incarnate divine son of God to Peter, James and John, our story begins to take a brand new direction. And so we read again in verse 51, the following. It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. When the days were approaching for him to be taken up, it says. This is a word that is only used here in the entire New Testament. And it's actually a special word. It's a technical word in Jewish writing. It's a word that actually means to be taken up to, be, to, to heaven in, specifically. It's a word that refers to Jesus's resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven. And it says, when the days for him to be taken up drew near, he set his face toward Jerusalem. That again is a Jewish expression, it's a Jewish way of speaking. And it refers to being determined to accomplish something. See, Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die just as he had been explaining to his disciples. More than that, Luke is trying to help his reader to understand that Jesus is also the promised suffering servant from Isaiah who'd written about this king who's to come some 700 years earlier. Isaiah the prophet says this in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7. It says, But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. You know, many people, especially those that are less familiar with the teaching of Jesus, or maybe are newer to following Jesus, might think of the crucifixion of Jesus as a tragedy, as an example of mob rule at its worst, and a horrible accident that a wonderful moral teacher was executed in this way. That passage shows us that Jesus not only knew what would happen to him in Jerusalem, but that he willingly sought to go there. He was determined to accomplish the task that was set before him. You see, Jesus was not accidentally murdered. He laid down his life as a willing sacrifice. And Jesus, now determined to go to Jerusalem to die, gradually over the next 10 chapters of Luke's gospel, will be making his way slowly yet purposefully to Jerusalem to accomplish this task. Why don't you read on with me in our passage, verses 52 and 53. It says the following, And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, Jesus sends his disciples ahead to prepare the way for him coming into Samaria. And people there reject him and says, because he was going to Jerusalem. Now that kind of seems an odd sort of thing to say when you think about it. You know, if I said to you, I'm going to Parramatta and you said, well, you're not welcome here. You might think that's a strange response or it would be a strange thing to say. You might think, well, why? And to understand, we need to know that there was a centuries old conflict between Jews and Samaritans that dated back to 930 BC. The great king Solomon had a son called Rehoboam and Rehoboam, according to the Bible, was a foolish king. And he foolishly, harshly treated the people of Israel. He treated them so poorly that one of his father's senior assistants took 10 out of the 12 tribes of Israel and he moved them north. And not only did he move them north to form a new kingdom in Israel, he formed a new religion as well. He built golden calves for them to worship. He created a, or chose a different high place, a different high mountain called Mount Gerizim uh, for them to worship upon. And eventually his descendants would even build a different temple on Mount Gerizim. And that temple had been destroyed about 130 years before Jesus by the Jewish high priest John Hyrcanus because the Samaritans refused to convert to Judaism. Now you can understand That act was not well received by the Samaritans. And so they had this long history of bitter rivalry. In John's Gospel, John tells us that Jews and Samaritans did not associate. There was a deeply entrenched hatred between Jews and Samaritans. And Jesus, by making his mission public that he was going to Jerusalem, was in effect highlighting Jerusalem and Mount Zion, and not Mount Gerizim as the center of God's work in the world. And the result is that the people of Samaria reject him and his ministry. Now, why is this here? Well, it's here because Luke wants to see that Jesus' rejection was not limited to his own people. It was far and it was wide. Religious leaders accused Jesus of blasphemy. But even the Samaritans rejected Jesus for rejecting their holy mountain and Samaria as the center of God's plan. Read on with me in verse 44. We read the following. It says, and when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? James and John, they've been nicknamed by Jesus as the sons of thunder, and they're nothing but true to their name. This hot-tempered duo filled with zeal for the honour of Jesus and rage at the indignity done to Jesus by the people of the city, exacerbated, no doubt, by the fact that these people are Samaritans. This calling down a fire from heaven, it's a reference to Elijah in Second Kings chapter 1, where King Ahaziah sends soldiers to arrest Elijah and Elijah calls down fire from heaven to consume them. And they have great faith. They see Jesus as someone in the line of the great prophets. And they obviously believe that they could act on Jesus's behalf. And yet we read the following in verses 55 and 56. It says, but he turned and rebuked them and they went to another village. You know, that word rebuked is possibly even better translated as and he turned and he strongly rebuked them. You know, that word is nearly always used by Jesus in reference to the exorcism of demons and unclean spirits from people. Jesus is completely opposed to what they are proposing that he do. You know, this kind of response calling for the annihilation of people who have rejected Jesus is not in keeping with his mission. You know, there will be a time that will come when Jesus will stand in judgment over all people as foretold by John the Baptist. John the Baptist in chapter 3 of our our, our gospel, Luke chapter 3, verse 17, he says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There is a time for judgment coming, but now is not the time, says Jesus. He is on the path to Jerusalem. He is on the path to the cross. You see, Many people don't realize that the story of the Bible is actually, from beginning to end, one long love story. You know, now with the lockdowns easing, we have many more opportunities to enjoy the beauty of the world that is around us. To get outside and see what a stunning place we live in. And regardless of whether you would call yourself a follower of Jesus or not, just stopping to stare at the beauty around us fills our hearts with with awe and wonder at the incredibly beautiful part of the world that we live in here in Sydney. You see, the Bible teaches that the one true God is a loving relationship. He is a father who loves his son through the Holy Spirit. The most perfect love that exists anywhere in the universe exists within God himself. All the beauty that we see in the world and in other people comes from the fact they were made by the most pure love in the entire universe. And this loving Father made the world to share His love with it. He wanted all of the universe to be folded into the wonderful love of the Father for His Son through the Holy Spirit. That is, we were made by God to be in a loving relationship with Him. And because that is our purpose... True rest and true peace can only be found in God. But the one purpose for which we were made to know God and love God is the one thing that we often spend most of our time resisting. We'd rather chart our own course in life. We'd rather be self-determined and free to call the shots for ourselves rather than to know and enjoy God. But not only does this rejection of God lead to the restlessness and lack of peace that so many of us feel rejecting the one true source of all that is good the greatest love in the universe leaves us broken that is contrary to how we were made and it leaves us corrupt that is rejecting what is good before God and therefore guilty and condemned You know, these genuine wrongs could not be simply swept under the carpet by God. They must be punished. But the God whose love is not put off by our sin, but rather he looked to rescue us in love. And he sent his son to become a man in every way to redo life for us, to live the life we never lived, to die a place taking death upon that cross that we could be reconciled once and for all back to God himself. The God who is love simply through faith. And faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is wonderful news. That is the good news. And that is the path of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is determined. He has set his face to go to Jerusalem. But James and John, they had completely misunderstood the path of our Lord Jesus. They did not understand that his glorious exaltation would be through his suffering and his death. More, they had no idea that their calling would be to follow in his footsteps to suffer abuse, to suffer slander, to suffer rejection, to suffer persecution, to suffer poverty, imprisonment and shame on his behalf. They didn't realize they'd forgotten they'd been called in verse 23 to take up their cross and follow him daily. And forgetting this call, they were indignant at the rejection of Jesus, calling for fire right here and right now. You the truth is that God would eventually use the suffering of these disciples to glorify Jesus and save many, many people, including many of these Samaritans. You know, in the book of Acts, Saul starts persecuting the church. And as a result of persecuting all these followers of Jesus, he, he ends up killing Stephen. And as a result, the Christians flee for their lives and they flee to many other places, including to Samaria, where they start sharing the good news about Jesus. And people come to faith en masse. So much so that we read in Acts chapter 8, verse 14. Now, when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. You see, many people would come to faith here. And John would eventually return to serve those people who prior to the cross had rejected Christ, but later would be devoted to him. See, James and John had misunderstood the glorious path to the salvation of these people. Well, friends, this morning, here is a difficult question I want us to consider. Are you aware that you have been called by the Lord Jesus To follow him on a path of suffering. You know, in our rich culture, for many, many years, it's been possible to believe that you can follow Christ and have the best the world has to offer at the same time. You know, 40 years ago, to be known as a Christian was, on the whole, a positive thing in our society it was that people would think highly of you, to think you're a good, upstanding citizen and a moral person. You know, if you wind the clock back 20 years in our culture, to be a Christian was, on the whole, overall, maybe not a positive, but a neutral thing. To be thought of as somewhat eccentric, somewhat odd, but overall, somewhat neutral. Wind the clock forward to today and how times have changed. Ever increasingly, to be a Christian today is a negative. It's to be considered to be morally corrupt. It's to be considered to be a bad guy. Uh, Stephen McAlpine, in his new book, Being the Bad Guy, says this so well. He says the following. The tide has shifted further. Increasingly, Christianity is viewed as the bad guy. Christianity is no longer an option. It's a problem. The cultural, political, and legal guns that Christianity once held and now trained on us, and it's happened quickly. The number of those professing faith has fallen dramatically. The number of those who reject the faith they once held until their late teens has risen dramatically. The seat at the cultural table that we once assumed was ours for keeps has increasingly been given to others. We're on the wrong side of history the wrong side of so many issues and conversations. If this were a Western, we would be the guys wearing the black hats whose appearance is accompanied by the foreboding soundtrack. It comes as a surprise. We're not sure how it happened and we don't like it and we don't feel we deserve it, but we are the bad guys now. You know, we might not like it, but the truth is that increasingly to be a Christian in our Western culture is to be one of the bad guys. But this shouldn't surprise us. In chapter 6 of Luke, verse 26, the Lord Jesus says the following. He says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. You know, I find that verse 26 so haunting. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. I've been reflecting on that this week about whether all people speak well of me. You know, I believe there's a kindness in some of the changes that have been happening in our culture. That's harder and harder to believe that you can embrace the way of Jesus and the world at the same time. And that's point number one, the misunderstood path. The disciples couldn't understand that Jesus was on a path of suffering to save the lost. But not just point number one, the misunderstood path, but also point two, the costly path. You know, Jesus continues on his slow journey toward Jerusalem. And now we're going to spend some time. He's going to spend some time teaching his disciples more about the costly nature of what it means to follow him. And Jesus will teach them about this cost through his encounters with three different unnamed people who are interested in becoming disciples. And at in each interaction, Jesus will teach something different, a different aspect of the cost involved in being his disciple. You know what, friends, it's worth probably pausing here at this point to consider what we're just about to read. You know, if you're following Jesus, it's a reminder of what to expect when it comes to following Jesus. You're to expect that there's a real cost involved. You know, if you're here, though, and you're considering following Jesus, this is also something to pause and consider. These are things that you need to carefully weigh before making a decision to follow Jesus. There is a significant cost involved in following him. And so we read the first cost, cost number one, and that is that following Jesus will mean not being at home in this world. Read with me verse 57 and 58. This is the following. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, that's to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You know, I love the commitment of this first would be disciple. Wherever you go, Jesus, I'm in. You know, I wonder how many of us would be nervous to express that kind of willingness to follow Jesus. I'll follow you, Jesus, wherever you go to Iraq to Somalia, you name it, I'm going, says this disciple. But Jesus wants to help him to see what this will mean for him. And so Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. Jesus is saying, animals of this world have a place to call home, but the Son of Man has nowhere. I just want us to sit and think about that. This is this is massive. That God incarnate would come to earth as one who is homeless. Now, this is not primarily meaning that he did not own a physical home, although this is true. But that he traveled through this world without ever settling down. He lived like he didn't belong here. He lived as though he was just Passing through this world. Behold the cost he paid for us, church. That the king of glory, who deserved all creation to bow down in worship to him. Who deserved for all creation to wait upon him hand and foot in the most luxurious palace the world has ever seen. Rejected completely this way of living. Jesus lived as though this was not his home. And Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, it will mean that like me, you will not be at home in this world. Here is the difficult question for us to consider this morning, church. Is that how you are living? Are you living like this is not your home? If we're honest, it's far too easy to to, in a false reality kind of way, pretend like this is home. To begin to tell ourselves that this is where I belong. You know, when this is home, or when we pretend like this is home, we, we try to make this life, our existence, as comfortable as possible. So we buy the nicest house possible, and we perform the best renovations possible, and we take the longest holidays possible, and we choose the best career path possible, the most prestigious education possible, and take the best opportunities possible for our kids to achieve the best exam results and opportunities, again, that are possible. When this is home, we avoid completely all risk from illness or financial loss, and we seek to extend out this life as long as possible with the highest quality of living. That is possible, and so we obsess with exercise and diet and financial investments and saving for the future. And when this is home or when we pretend like this is home, most importantly, the things that excite us the most are all right here. Relationships and TV shows and children and restaurants and holidays and careers. You know, these are all in many ways good things, but if we're following Jesus, we're just passing through this world. This is not our home. What should capture our heart is our true home, which is with Christ. Friends, is there a deep longing in our hearts to be with Christ? That's the question I've been reflecting on this week. You know, I found myself at various points over the last several weeks just Looking at my kids playing uh, and and looking at my beautiful wife, Charlotte. If you ever met Charlotte, she's such a kind, sweetheart, hearted person and and such a joy to be around. I've been thinking as I watch my two beautiful boys playing alongside my wife and just thinking, do you know what? It would be so easy to build my life around them. And yet the Apostle Paul says the following in Philippians chapter one, verse twenty one. For me to live as Christ and to die again. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. You know, Paul felt such a deep love for Christ that his greatest desire in life was to depart and be with him. You know, for Paul, he was not at home in this life. See, the truth is that if you follow Jesus, you'll never really be at home in this life. And that, at times, will be a real cost. But beneath that cost is a wonderful glory in knowing you have a wonderful home awaiting you with Christ. And that, my friends, is the first cost when it comes to following Jesus. But not just the cost of not having a home in this life or not being at home in this life, but the second cost, cost number two, is that following Jesus will mean all other commitments become secondary. Read with me verse 59. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. You know, on the face of it, this seems like a perfectly reasonable request. I mean, let me go and bury my father. But to nearly all ancient cultures, this wasn't just a simple request. This was an absolute obligation. You know, in the ancient Jewish book of Sirach, it says the following. It says, my child, let your tears fall for the dead. Lay out the body with due ceremony and do not neglect. Do not neglect the burial." One of the highest duties of a son in life was to bury his own father, and to neglect this would have been incredible dishonor to the son's parents. You know, some have tried to argue that this passage, uh, that in this passage, this person's father was not yet dead, and therefore it was a request for an sort of indefinite leave of absence in following Jesus. But but that doesn't make sense of the urgency of this request. This person's father has recently died. And they're asking for permission to bury him before following the Lord Jesus. And so we read the following in verse 60 of our passage. Jesus says, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Knowing the context in which this is written, Jesus' response is startling. Jesus says, no, leave the dead to bury their own dead and join me in proclaiming the kingdom of God. It sounds quite harsh, doesn't it? But what does it mean? Taken literally, it doesn't actually make sense. Dead people can't bury other dead people. And the reason is that Jesus is speaking metaphorically. He's speaking using symbols. Leave the spiritually dead, Jesus is saying, to bury their own dead. But as for you, join me in proclaiming the kingdom. Jesus is saying there are some things in life that the spiritually dead, that is those that haven't had their eyes open to see and believe in me can do without you. You give yourself to telling people about me. You see, what Jesus is saying is that following him is to be your highest priority in all of life. Now notice that Jesus is not saying that honoring your parents doesn't matter. He came to fulfill the law and the law, one of the very first commandments is to honour your father and mother, just from the Ten Commandments. He's also not saying that you shouldn't care about burying your parents or family members. Jesus is saying that there is something that is more important than even your family commitments, and that is obedience to the Lord Jesus. Now, I've been reflecting on this recently because this is kind of something of what I felt acutely in and around my sister's wedding. Several years ago, my sister married another woman. Um, my sister Kristen married a beautiful woman called Buster, and we love those two so much. And yet we strongly felt, particularly in light of my role as a pastor, that my attendance of their wedding would communicate something that we did not wish to communicate, that we would be celebrating They're joining together, which for us as followers of Christ is not something we celebrate, but something we grieve. And so I, as the only member of my extended family, chose not to attend. And as a result, my extended family were quite angry with me, quite furious with me. And I remember around Christmas, uh, following uh, their wedding, having a conversation with my uh, little niece. And she said to me, Uncle Brendan, why is everyone so mad with you? And in that moment, God just gave me a beautiful opportunity to say, you know what, dear? You know, sometimes, even though we love Auntie Cristo and Auntie Buster so much, we have to do what we really believe is right, even when it means that people are angry with us. And so too, it comes to following Jesus as well. And that's point number two. Following Jesus means all other commitments become secondary. But thirdly and finally, following Jesus, the third cost to following Jesus is that following Jesus will mean abandoning your old way of life forever. Read with me verses 61 and 62 of our passage. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And in this final encounter, the would-be disciple has such a simple request. Can I just farewell my family first? And Jesus says something that to us is a little bit hard to understand. Jesus says no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks literally at the thing's back is fit for or better is useful in The kingdom of God. See, a plow was at that time pulled usually by a beast of burden like an ox. And it would require careful attention from the person driving the ox to determine what lies ahead. In order to navigate through the rocky terrain that is often the case in first century Palestine. And to keep looking back would lead the person driving the plough to zigzag all the way through their field, which would be quite useless. And so Jesus doesn't forbid this would-be disciple from saying goodbye. This is actually more of a warning to this would-be disciple. Jesus is saying, if you would be useful in the kingdom of God, you can't keep looking back. See for every person who would follow Jesus there will be a temptation to look back at your old way of life and the things and the people you've left behind with some degree of longing to look back in an old relationship that that a person that didn't love the Lord you know maybe a boyfriend or a girlfriend and for whom you broke it off to follow Christ and to look back and think maybe I could try again maybe I could Flirt to convert this time. You may be a family relationship where you've sacrificed family lunches to serve at church and you felt the distance and the disappointment from family. And to sometime begin to question and think, was that the right decision? Maybe I should just skip church one out of every four and come three out of four times instead. To remember the holidays that you used to have before you started tithing and to think to yourself, well, maybe, maybe we should just cut back a little bit on our giving. To think back at all the hours you've spent serving your gospel community, hours that you could have devoted to advancing your career. You know, Jesus looks at this would-be disciple and knows that this request to farewell his family conceals a temptation that he will face in his discipleship to him. To look back with regret at their relationship, at his relationship with his family. And so Jesus is saying, if you follow me, you're going to have to keep your eyes firmly fixed on me or you won't be useful. You're going to be tempted to long for your family, but don't look back. Don't don't look back at the things they've left behind. But focus on me and you will be useful in the kingdom of God. Well, friends, having talked at length at the cost that is involved in following Jesus, that misunderstood path that Jesus was on, the the cost of discipleship that Jesus has outlaid for us, I thought it would be appropriate to finish with a bit of a story about someone who embraced that cost. And it comes from uh, the story of Nabil Qureshi, who was a Pakistani Muslim who was converted to Christianity and became a, a Christian evangelist, and apologist, and he describes his conversion to faith uh, in the following ways. He says, The cost for a Muslim to accept the gospel can be tremendous. Of course, following Jesus meant that I would immediately be ostracized from my community. For all devout Muslims, it means sacrificing the friendships and social connections that they have built from childhood. It could mean being rejected from, by one's parents, siblings, spouse and children. This becomes exponentially more difficult if the Muslim has no person to turn to after following Jesus. No Christian who has reached out. But I was not the only one who would have to pay for my decision. If there were traits my family was known for in the Muslim community, they were my parents' joyfulness, our close-knit relationships, and the honour we garnered by faithfully following Islam. My choice to follow Jesus meant raising all three. My decision would shame my family with incredible dishonour. Even if I were right about Jesus, could I do such a terrible thing to my family after everything they had done for me? Looking for a living word, I put the Quran down and picked up the Bible. I had never read the Bible for personal guidance before. I did not even know where to start. I figured the New Testament would be a good place. So I opened to the beginning of Matthew Within minutes, I found these words: "Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted." The words were like a current sent through my dead heart, electrifying it once more. This was what I was looking for. It was a God, it was as if God had written these words in the Bible two thousand years prior, specifically with me in mind. It was almost too incredible to believe. To a man who had seen the world only through Muslim eyes, the message was overwhelming. I am blessed for mourning. Why? How? I am imperfect. I do not perform to his standard. Why would he bless me? And for mourning, no less. Why? I continued reading fervently. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not blessed are the righteous, but blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, I hunger and thirst for righteousness. I do. But I can never retain it. God will bless me anyway. Who is this God who loves me so much, even in my failures? Tears flowed from my eyes once more, but now they were tears of joy. I knew that what I held in my hands was life itself. This was truly God's word, and it was as if I was meeting him for the very first time. See, just as the Lord Jesus walked a path of suffering, so too he calls us to join him. But that path is filled with joy because we get to walk with God himself. Friends, would we freshly embrace the cost of following Jesus? Amen.